It was the French reformer, John Calvin, who once wrote that, quote, man's nature or his heart is a perpetual idol factory. That is, we are always producing idols to worship, replacing the worship of God, the creator, with the worship of the things that he has created. Many of those things for our good, but when definition of an idol, when anything becomes more important than God, the controlling center of your life, the last in a series of priorities to go, an object of worship, it becomes an idol worthy of judgment. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but it, a few weeks ago, but it, it bears repeating. For the wrath of God, we don't normally like to talk about the wrath of God, is right now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Why would they do How do they do that? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. We know, people know in their heart of hearts that there is a God worthy of worship. They have to suppress that truth. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, is eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they, all these third person uh, plural pronouns that's talking about humanity, <laughs> it's talking about you, so that they, you, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the incorruptible, the perfect God, for an image in the form of corruptible, sinful man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, we worship the corruptible things that he created rather than him. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, who is blessed forever. Amen. God's wrath is currently right now revealed from heaven because humanity worships what God created rather than the Creator. The very things He created which declare His majesty and His glory. Psalm 19 says it like this, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Those very things that declare His glory, we have begun to worship because the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Why? Why do we worship lesser things instead of the ultimate or the supreme person? Why? So we can, creating God in our own image, we can do then what we want. So then, is it any wonder as we get to the book of Revelation, we find God's wrath poured out even on creation? The things that he's created that we worship. What is the end of hum humanity's worship of creation rather than the worship of the creator? Even creation itself, currently subjected to futility and corruption, will be destroyed and remade. 
Now, to be clear, part of the creation mandate, when God placed us humans on this planet, part of that mandate was we were to care for His creation. We were to be good stewards, and we have not necessarily done a very good job with that. I understand that, regardless of your personal positions. Listen, just to me, just lay it out there. I'm not a scientist. I don't know all that scientific fact. If I wanted to know the scientific fact, I'd just go read social media. (laughs) Regardless of your positions on environmentalism and ecology and global warming and the like, we have done a very good job of ruining, corrupting God's perfect creation to include worshiping this earth as if it is our mother rather than stewarding it well and exercising good and godly dominion over it. And so, listen, I believe that Christians ought to be the lead environmentalists. Not crazy, not hugging trees. It's not what I'm talking about. We're to be the, because it's, it's part of the creation mandate. So one day, it will all be destroyed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth because one is desperately needed, one that will serve us and its God rather than the other way around, rather than the one we worship. Therefore, we see God's judgment include cataclysmic wrath poured out on creation. See, when we read the text, you may ask, what does God have against trees and grass? Well, certainly, ultimately, it's because of the impact that such judgment has on rebellious humanity. Leave. Revelation 7 this morning, filled with the wonder and worship of all heaven toward the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we make our way back to the earth in chapter 8. To this point, we've seen six of seven seals on the scroll in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We've seen those broken by the Lamb. And after a significant interlude, glorious interlude in chapter 7, we arrive at chapter 8, where the seventh seal will be broken, revealing the contents of the scroll. Seven trumpets followed by seven bowls, and they will be directed against rebellious humanity to be sure, to be clear, but in some sense, through the creation that humanity has wrongly worshipped. Read the text with me, Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 and following. The Lamb broke the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, a fire pan, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it or hurled it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had which had life destroyed and a third of the ships were destroyed and the 
third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. So what does God have against trees and grass and waters and fish and sun and moon and stars? See, God's good gifts should cause us to worship Him, not His gifts. These judgments are ultimately against rebellious humanity, but they are also a demonstration that God alone deserves worship. And inasmuch as we've made the thing, His good gifts more important than Him, we've messed it up, and judgment is coming. Some incredibly great truths to be found in this text, this outline, the seventh seal and the silence of heaven, incredible. Seven angels, seven trumpets, the prayers of the saints and the silence of heaven, the wrath of God in answer to the prayers, and the first four trumpets unleashed on creation, the cosmos. Again, we come through the first, we've come through the first six seals largely on earth as God begins to judge the earth, actually the earth dwellers, for their rebellion. We've come through chapter 7 where we, we, we see... All heaven praising God for His sovereignty, for His protection, for the salvation of His people. From every remember, from every nation, tribe, people, and 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 tongue, which brings us then today to the seventh seal. And we notice right away there is no judgment or even any initial action in the breaking of the seventh seal. And in fact, it it seems as if the breaking of the seal reveals the seven. Trumpet judgments to come. Now, my personal thought is that the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls or seven plagues. Now, some suggest each septet is a retelling, it's called recapitulation, a retelling of the same judgments from a different perspective. But they, as you read through it, just a cursory reading, they seem far too different. And they seem to increase with intensity through the Tribulation period. Things get really, really bad. So the Lamb, Jesus, breaks the seventh seal, which would then reveal the contents of the scroll itself. You see, the seven seals, and when you get to the seventh one, the scroll is opened. I suggest contains the two sets of judgments and the culmination of history, including the rescue of his people the new heavens, the new earth, all leading to the eschaton or the eternal state. The scroll is not the book of Revelation, but it contains God's purposes of redemption and judgment, culmination of history as we know it. This book had to be read. Now, interestingly, when the seal is broken, there is, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, just, just stop and think about that. There has been anything but silence in heaven to this point, right? In, in chapter 4, there are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and the four living creatures, the 24 elders continually break into praise, uh, cease not to proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In chapter 5, when the Lamb takes the scroll, the praise 
crescendos from the four living creatures, 24 elders, to myriads upon myriads of angels, to every created thing which is on the earth. In chapter 6, as each horse and rider is revealed, we hear one of the four living creatures say with a voice of thunder. That's what it says, voice of thunder, come! Further, we hear the voices of the martyrs uh, under the altar crying out for vengeance. In chapter 7, John hears the voice of an angel and the number of those sealed, 144,000. We see a great multitude of people which... No one could count, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation to our God and to the Lamb. Then the elders and the four living creatures fall to their faces, saying, Amen, and let loose with a sevenfold doxology until now. Silence. We don't like silence. If I stood up here for half an hour just looking at you, you'd leave after about, I figure I had maybe three minutes. It's clear heaven has been anything but silent. In fact, I have suggested the praise of heaven is constant and consistent, loud, exuberant, and joy-filled till now. Now, when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, there is silence. A dramatic pause deepening the suspense. Let that, let that sink into your psyche. S silence. Why? What, what is this about? Most agree this silence has at least two purposes, although as many as eight have been suggested, but I'll just go with the two first. Incredibly important. The scroll... Seventh seal has now been unfurled, and God is about to unleash unmitigated wrath on the earth. It is the great tribulation that supersedes all that came before, and all of heaven is breathlessly silent before Him. The judgment is almost unspeakable. causes those in heaven to stop their mouths. We live in a, a world and in a culture that is incre becoming increasingly blasphemous. Level all kinds of charges against God. Take His name in vain without a thought. Silence. What is wrong with us? Those in heaven stop their mouths before the one with whom all will one day give an account. We're reminded of Habakkuk 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Second, many suggest this half hour of silence is filled with the activity of verses 2 to 5. All heaven, you see, is silent before the prayers of God's people. It's not that God has to be, everybody be quiet so he can listen to us. That's not the point. The, the, the action is intensified with the complete absence of any sound. We assume that during this silence, another angel mixes the prayers of the saints, that is God's holy people, with incense which ascend to his presence. All is silent as God, listen, he doesn't have to, but he does it. 
as he gives unparalleled attention to the cries of his people. He hears you when you think he doesn't. We'll come back to that. It brings us to the second point, the seven angels, the seven trumpets. First, we should note these seven angels have the definite article, the. These are not just any angels. These are the seven angels who stand before God. Who who are they? They are not named, although in Luke chapter 1, we see that Gabriel, as he's introduced to Zacharias, is introduced as, as one who stands in the presence of God, some apocryphal works like Tobit and Jubilees mentioned the seven angels of the presence. It's actually a, a title, angels of the presence. First Enoch lists the names of the seven who stand before God as Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, although we say Michael, uh, Serechael, uh, Gabriel, and Remiel. Notice the suffix is L and all those. These are angels of God. That, of course, carries no biblical authority. It's just interesting to note. We also read in, in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 15, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, the same seven perhaps, who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. This calamitous wrath that is being poured out is being poured out from heaven. Don't miss it. This is awesome. It should get our attention. Several categories of angels in Scripture, seraphim, cherubim, archangels, uh, rulers, princes, powers, authorities, for example. Here we see a special designation of those seven who stand in His presence. The idea is they are readily present and prepared to carry out any task that He gives, gives them to do. We find they each receive a trumpet. There are seven trumpets, so each receives one. Trumpets throughout Scripture are sounded for something significant or important. Numbers 10, for example, Moses was instructed to make two trumpets of silver by which he he would, for example, here's a list, summon the congregation of Israel, gather around, to to move the tribes out. Is there there camping and traveling about? To move the tribes on their journey. We we assume that the sound... The sound of the trumpet is different to sound the alarm in a time of war, to announce religious feast days. In fact, by the time of Jesus, it said that there were 48 trumpet blasts in a special feast day to announce news, to proclaim new kings, to summon to worship. Very interestingly, in Joshua chapter 6, seven priests with trumpets. Stop right there. You see, much of what we see happening on earth is simply a type that points to the, the truth, the actuality of that which is in heaven. Seven priests with trumpets led the army of Israel around the city of Jericho. The first six days, they circled the city once in complete, uh, circled the city once in, once in each of those six days in complete silence. 600,000 soldiers. The seventh day, the seventh revolution, the trumpets were sounded, the people let out a war cry, and the walls of the city fell down flat. Silence, you see, before utter destruction. Further, the New Testament declares the sounding of the trumpet at the return of Christ. 
Uh, Matthew chapter 24, this is at the second coming, which I find interesting. It's because it says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, still on the earth, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. First Thessalonians 4, we all know this, And the Lord himself will descend uh, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. First Corinthians 15, I love this verse, love this passage. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. That is, we will not all die, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Same word, when it talks about the incorruptible God, same word, we will be raised imperishable, uncorruptible, and we will be changed. Listen, all of those funerals that I've done this year, and I've done a lot, Some of them were your family members who knew the Lord. I want to encourage you right now. Their souls are in the presence of God right now. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, it is true their bodies are buried, but there is coming a day when all those who are asleep, that is, who have died, and they are bodily in the tomb, but there is coming a day when they will hear the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and they will be raised physically to life. We look forward to that day. Revelation tells us it is the first resurrection. Here, listen to me. Those of you who have lost Family members, this year, listen to me, death is not the final victor. We await future resurrection, and it is sure. Listen for the trumpet. It's all over. Brings us to our third point, the prayers of the saints and the silence of heaven. Most agree that as this silence permeates heaven, it is that this, it is to highlight the fact that God hears the prayers of his people. He gives full attention to their cries. Back in chapter 6, we saw the souls under the altar crying out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That is, those earth dwellers, those unbelievers who killed us, those who martyred us. These are imprecatory prayers. Take care of it, Lord. Make it right. And God hears their prayers, gives them a white robe, and told them, listen, just rest a little while longer. Now, <laughs> it appears a little while longer has happened, and God is about to judge the earth dwellers. Here in verses 3 and 4, we find another angel, that is, not one of the seven holding the, the trumpets. He comes and he stands at the altar holding a golden censer. Again, it's a fire pan. The altar is likely the altar of incense, which stood right um, before the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, uh, which had the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God. Twice a day, the priest would take fire, that is, coals, from the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made and carry them uh, in a golden censer into the holy place and put them on the golden altar of incense. The incense was a special mixture. You can look it up. Special mixture of spices there. The incense would burn, arising as a sweet, savory aroma to God. Here we see the angel performing that duty in heaven. Remember, what is happening here is often just a type of that which is actually happening in heaven much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of the saints. Which prayers? Probably all the prayers of his people, but especially during this time of tribulation, prayers for protection, prayers for deliverance, prayers for vengeance. 
prayer of the martyrs in chapter 6. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up to God out of the angel's hand. They, they rose before him. The point that he's being made here is God hears them. He sees you. He knows what's going on. Psalm 141, may my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. Your prayers, listen to me, brothers and sisters, your prayers are rising like incense before God. It's all imagery, but communicates an incredible, wonderful truth. <laughs> Paul tells us that God holds everything together by the word of his power. He holds everything together by the, by the word of his power. If God were to nod off for just a second, this universe would blow apart. But while God is busy running the universe, even pouring out his wrath on re rebellious humanity, he is not too busy for his children. He is not too busy for you. You need to hear that today. I've heard it asked, does God care about the little things in my life? Here's the answer. Is there any need you have that is big enough for the majestic God of the universe, too big for him to hear and handle? He hears them all. As I suggested a few weeks ago, if you ever feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceilings, unheard by a very busy or inattentive God, know that he hears, that he listens, and he answers according to his purposes. He, hear, he hears and he answers according to his purposes. Here's another little uh, gem for you. Sometimes we think that God doesn't answer our prayers because he doesn't give us what we ask for, what we want. Listen, no is as much of an answer as yes. Every parent in here knows that. No is as much of an answer as yes. He answers all of your prayers. You may not like the answer, but it is always for your good. Always. How does God answer these specific prayers? Point four, the wrath of God in response or an answer to the prayers of his people. So the prayers ascend, verses five and six, indicate the answer. Then the angel took the censer, a fire pan, and he filled it, not with incense and the prayers of the saints, but with the answer to the prayers, with fire of the altar, which burned the incense, and he threw it, he hurled it to the earth. This is hard to hear. This destruction is coming from heaven. This angel of intercession becomes an angel of judgment. Seen this before. There follow peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This phenomenon, minus the earthquake, accompanied John's first vision of the throne in chapter 4. Now it follows each set of seven judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. We see that same phraseology at the end of each of them. And now the seven angels who are the seven trumpets prepare to sound them, presumably each in turn lifting the trumpet to their lips, which brings us to our last point. The first four trumpets, the first four cataclysmic, climactic judgments of this septet of judgments. Like the seven seals, these judgments are broken into subsets of four and three, or four, two, and one if you prefer, but four and three. The first four are judgments, uh, the, the first four are judgments and great calamities against, again, the cosmos, particularly the earth. But it has a dreadful impact on humanity. The next two, trumpet five and six, are demonic plagues upon un repentant, we'll come back to that, unrepentant humanity. And the last one reveals the seven bowls. Now remember, the first four seals 
The first four seals depicted judgments that are the inevitable result of human sinfulness. The first four trumpets reveal the active involvement of God in bringing punishment on a wicked, rebellious, unrepentant world. These judgments are images, but remember they mean something. They mean something. How literally we take them is up for discussion, but somehow these judgments affect the seas and the grass and the trees and the sun and the moon and the star, all signaling God's wrath being poured out. Here's the crazy thing. People are going to know it. Look at them with me. The first trumpet sounds in verse 7, and hail and fire mixed with blood was thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up with a third of the trees, and we assume a third of the grass or a third of the vegetation. Most of these judgments, this is incredibly important, listen up. Most of these judgments in some way remind us of the ten plagues poured out on Egypt. This one corresponding to the seventh plague when hail battered the land, destroying the crops. In fact, Exodus 9 reads, Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, we assume lightning, ran down to the earth. We also remember, we also remember the ten plagues of the Exodus were poured out against the gods of Egypt, demonstrating the supremacy of the God of the Hebrews, the true and the living God. For example, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, so, so the first plague was turning the Nile into blood. They, they worshipped Ra, the sun god, so the ninth plague was the darkness over the land. They, they worshipped the Pharaoh as a god, so the tenth plague, plague took his firstborn. All these plagues demonstrated that God alone is God, and God alone is worthy of worship. You're worshipping all of these things that I have created, all of these things that I've made, you messed it up. God is doing the same thing here, only intensified. People have sought their lives and meaning and purpose through God's creation rather than through Him, the Creator. Do you understand what I'm saying? We think that we're going to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in the things that God has created. They are for our good and for our joy. Make no mistake about it. But we find our ultimate sense of fulfillment in the Creator, in God Himself. And until you find your fulfillment there, you will keep searching the rest of your life. And so judgment falls. Notice the word a third. That, it, that word appears, those words appear 12 times in these verses. And when we get to the bold judgments, the devastation will be more complete. But here it's always one third, over and over, one third. Well, why? Why? Listen. Because even in his wrath, God is leaving room more. God is calling people to repentance. Are you listening? God demands nothing less than your full allegiance. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I said it again. Some of you need to stop playing around. If, the, if your experience of Christianity is this hour on Sunday morning, I want to say to you, I want you to hear me very carefully. God wants the other 167 hours too. They're His. One third over and over calling people to repentance. Sadly, we will find over and over people do not turn from their sin and in faith to Jesus Christ, like some of you. Check in a box and call mom and dad and say, yeah, I was at church. Good for you. The 
They will harden their hearts as Pharaoh did and refuse to accept God's gift of grace. For example, we read in Revelation 9, which comes at the end of the, set, uh, the trumpet judgments, it's actually after trumpet number six, whatever. Look at it. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands so as to so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk or put anything else in there that is more important to you than God. My job, my relationships, my education, my stuff. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. I want you to understand, they see the judgment of God. They experience the judgment of God. They know that it is the judgment of God, and yet they do not repent. Revelation 16, which comes at the end of the bold judgments now, reads, men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed. That's the response. Blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Just like Romans 1 said. Instead of giving him glory, they gave everything else glory. In this first trumpet, judge, in first trumpet judgment, hail and fire mixed with blood, blood literal and metaphorical, <coughs> it represents death, fell on a third of the earth and a third of the trees and the grass were Burned up. Second trumpet sounded in verse 8, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. You see, first it was the land, part of the cosmos, and now it's the sea. Please notice the trumpets are sounded in heaven and from heaven. Um, come these cataclysmic events. Make no mistake about it. I've said it. This is God's judgment on rebellious humanity, which is very interesting to me. <coughs> one of the primary objections of people to God is all the evil in the world, right? If there is a good God in the world, why is there so much evil? Uh, how do you explain Hurricane Ian? Why does all this stuff happen? And we come up with all kinds of natural explanations for hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and tsunamis and famine. But know this, the wrath of God is currently being poured out and it will get worse. You have not seen anything yet and yet people will still not repent. Great mountain burning with fire sounds a bit like a volcano. Around this time, two significant volcanoes had erupted. The eruption of Thera in 46, 47 AD, and the very recent, less than 20 years from the writing of Revelation, Mount Vesuvius, which erupted in 79, bearing Pompeii and Herculaneum. And most were familiar with that destruction and devastation. As a result of this great mountain falling to the sea, into the oceanic waters, a third of the sea became blood. Again, whether literal or figurative is not the point. The point is devastation of the seas, an important life source for people. We, we should be reminded of the first plague in Egypt, the Nile being turned to blood. Blood Here, a third of the creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. It is a, listen, it is an eschatological judgment beyond natural terms. Natural phenomena. We can't explain this. Third angel sounded, verses 10 and 11, and a great star, a meteorite, comet, because it's like a torch. That's what some suggest. You've watched those movies, haven't you? 
comet and asteroid, it's going to happen. Fell from heaven, burning like a torch, fell in this time a third of the fresh water. The last trumpet, mountain on the seas, this on the rivers and springs, which would be the source of fresh water for people. Do not miss that the angel hurled the censer that... In previous verses, heard the censer filled with fire to the earth, and each of the first three judgments contains a reference to fire, portending the final judgment to come in Revelation 20 called the lake of fire. I, I, don't, I don't know what I need to do to convince you. Some of you sit there and you say, this sounds like something I should watch on October 31st. We're told that the star is called wormwood, a bitter plant that makes the water undrinkable. It's not necessarily poisonous unless induced in large amounts. It just makes the water useless. As a result, the waters become wormwood and many people die from the waters. See, the direct result of these judgments on the ecology of the earth, it happens to the waters, but, but the result is human death. Finally, the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck. It should remind us of the ninth plague, when there was dread, thick darkness over the face of the earth. It's not an eclipse. It is much worse. It appears that a third of the day and a third of the night has no light source and terrifying darkness covers the land. Amos and Joel speak of the day of the Lord as the day of darkness rather than light, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Are you listening? One-third, not all. One-third mentioned 12 times to give people the opportunity to repent, to give you the opportunity to repent. He demands nothing less than your full allegiance and devotion. Robert Mounts, one of my commentators, writes, says, plagues preceded the release of the children of Israel from their Egyptian masters, so plagues will precede the exodus of the church from hostile powers. They are the prelude to that great and final exodus in which the church is taken out of the world and enters into the eternal presence of God. We are dealing here with that montage of divine judgments upon a recalcitrant wor world which leads to the return of Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord. Jesus is coming back, King of kings and Lord of lords. And all will bow their knees and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which is what humanity has not done, Romans chapter 1. We will. But the end has not yet come. Why? Because he is patient with sinners, allowing time to repent. He is allowing you time to repent. Again, God demands nothing less than your full allegiance and devotion. 2 Peter chapter 3 says to some of you today, listen, the Lord is not slow about His promise. What promise? The promise of His return, His second coming. He's not slow about it, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance.
Are you listening? Judgment is coming. I finish with this final thought. When you see a beautiful sunset, the blue waters of crashing waves, a majestic mountain range, a meadow in full bloom of wildflowers, the southern Appalachians tenderly graced with soft, smoky clouds, what do you see? What do you see? Does your heart manufacture an idol, or do you see the glory of God? Let's stand for prayer. Father, we live in an incredibly beautiful place, part of this unbelievable creation which you have made to declare your glory, your invisible attributes, your divine power. Forgive us that we can look at a sunset or a mountain range and not be overwhelmed with the glory of our great God. Would you help us to Remember that it is your patience and your kindness that leads us to repentance. Would you remind us of the last time we repented? Would you help us to live faithfully and fully devoted to you, not just for this hour or so on Sunday morning, but on Monday and Tuesday and the day after that? Would you, would you help us to live faithfully and fully with full allegiance through Christ our Savior. And may people around us see that there's something to our lives. Jesus is coming back. We believe it. We live like it. And we'll proclaim it until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen.